Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're about 30 seconds late. It's okay. Uh, you know, John was uh, heavily stuck in traffic, so well, he actually got here on time, but I'm, so I'm just kidding. But anyways, welcome to our uh, Friday morning series. This has become a staple for us. I think you get a lot of uh, great information. Uh, I want to thank John for his uh, work every week uh, going through the literature and uh, learning more things and sharing them with us. So that's really fantastic. Uh, we have some, some, you know, some good news in terms of, uh, of COVID-19. Uh, this is the report that I get from Emily Boucher, who's in our government and relations as an associate, and uh, she provides this to Lori Pelletier and myself from the governor's briefing notes usually. So thank you, Emily, for doing this uh, every, every week, every day, actually. Um, and uh, just a few comments. The, the, the red alert state, the wide map, includes 55 towns that are still in red, but are significantly down from last week's map, which included 97 towns. And John may show you a map. Uh, this is the uh, first full week in Connecticut where nursing homes have reported zero resident deaths associated with COVID-19 since September. That's, that's a tremendous, tremendous, uh, you know, good news there. Um, President Biden has set a goal of 70% of U.S. adults to receive a COVID-19 vaccine by July 4th. Uh, Connecticut will reach that by this week, by the end of this week. So that's just really remarkable. The number of new vaccinations has dropped because, again, we've vaccinated a lot of people and there is some hesitancy that we need to deal with. We need all of you to be involved with this. Uh, we still have uh, our cities in particular have very low percentage compared to our suburbs. And that, and that, uh, that's something we need to deal with. Um, and then uh, in terms of, uh, you know, additional things that I'd like to share with you is, uh, number one, uh, on Tuesday, May 11th, we will have another COVID-related grand rounds. This one specifically on the risk of allergic reaction to SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and how to evaluate and manage. So uh, Matthew Greenhawn, who's for, uh, from the Children's Hospital of Colorado, will give, be giving that grand rounds. Uh, so please attend. And then next next week, we'll come back with John and uh, Donna Borokov. We'll talk about the thrombosis issues that are related to COVID-19, Johnson & Johnson specifically. Uh, last thing, I just want to wish everyone a, a happy Mother's Day uh, for this Sunday. You know, uh, celebrate our moms. Um, I'll be traveling to D.C. to see my mom. It'll be a nice event. So for all of you, those of you in the room here who are moms, congratulations to you. And those uh, that are that are logging in, um, and also Happy Nurses Week. This is again a, just a remarkable, uh, you know, very important group of people that have worked very hard, especially now during the pandemic. There are heroes. So to all of you, thank you for what you do. Uh, at noon today, uh, we have a uh, special uh, celebration with uh, Rosa Deloro and. Uh, some of our, our leaders, uh, Dr. Fink is going to be part of that. So please join us for that uh, uh, town hall type seminar with uh, with Rosa Delora, Congresswoman from the South. And uh, for that, I'm going to ask Dr. Shriver to come up and tell us all about COVID. John. Thank you, Juan. Good morning, everyone, uh, and happy Mother's Day. Um, I actually almost didn't make it here because the traffic, which lets you know that things are moving in the right direction. Uh, certainly uh, a lot more traffic than I've seen over the last few months. Uh, welcome. We have a lot to cover today, and then we left extra time for questions. There's no second speaker today, so get your questions ready, and uh, we'll do our best to answer them as we move forward. So uh, that resurgence that we started about a month ago is sort of fizzling out. This is wonderful news in the U.S. You can see, uh, I think the pointer works today. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, that's the number of new cases um, by day. It's going down, although it's still a lot. 
you know, 30, 40 to 50,000 a day, but way down. And this resurgence is beginning to fizzle, which is great news. Hospitalizations are starting to inch their way down. We still have almost 50,000 people across the United States in the hospital from COVID-related problems, but um, things are going in the right direction. And it's a great time for this country to take advantage of this. And I'll show you some of the successes and some of the challenges as we move ahead. Now, these are the United States hotspots. You can see it's uh, very disparate. You've got a problem in Michigan and the upper Midwest still. Uh, not exactly clear why. You'll see that South Dakota, for example, where they have terrific immunization rates, uh, inch our way up there, here we go, uh, is doing well. The Northeast, we have a lot of COVID still, but as Juan mentioned, it's starting to settle down and there's some certainly spots in Florida and Texas and now Oregon and Washington state are having resurgences. So we are not out of the woods yet, but uh, we have spotty hotspots across the country. The deaths, however, are broadly declining across the United States. There's still a problem in Southern California, but as you look at this map, uh, this is a tremendous success story. It involves immunizing elderly and risk across the country. And I don't want to minimize, you know, we've had some failures and some successes. This is clearly a success. We're getting our arms around reducing COVID-related deaths in the United States, and that's improving. Now, this is really interesting. If you look at this slide, this shows the age group across the United States who had COVID. You'll notice during the um, height of the pandemic, uh, that actually was older people. And as we've gotten now towards May, the highest peak are actually 25, 18 to 34, that sort of group, young adults. And the elderly have fallen off. You'll see that those curves by color, the older people are falling off as a major group to get COVID-19 right now because of immunization. So um, this is now morphed to a disease of young adults and who are under immunized in the United States. And we're gonna talk about some of that the challenges with that. I think one of the problems is many of the young adults, I spoke to a 17 year old yesterday, says, I've never been sick. I'm not taking the vaccine. I mean, why would I bother? Nobody's getting sick from it. And so there's sort of a misperception um, that healthy young people don't get sick from COVID and end up with complications and other problems. So something we're gonna have to work on. Now, Connecticut is moving in the right direction. These are the cases um, uh, that you can see that from the public health department. Uh, in May, it continues to decline from April. April, we were struggling a bit, and this is improving. Uh, and uh, this is very good news for the state. And you can see, as Dr. Salazar mentioned, um, we have a number of towns now where literally there are no cases. Litchfield County has gotten this under control up in the Northwest. But you'll see we have a lot of towns still with very, very vigorous community spread. The test positivity is ranging between two and 3% on any day uh, that, uh, that I was looking at this week. So I gave it 2%. So we're improving, but we have plenty of community spread depending on town. So uh, something to be vigilant still. It's, it's just not time to tear off the mask and, and to go to the pub. Uh, we're gonna need to continue to be vigilant and, and get this community spread fixed. Patients hospitalized are still cooking along in the state at around 400. It's gone down a bit, uh, but we have a lot of people hospitalized still, uh, steady stream. Um, it is much, much better 
than in the original uh, and the secondary spike we had over the winter. So we're in a much better place, but again, not out of the woods yet. We're still hospitalizing a lot of people with COVID-19 related problems. The mortality is low and a vaccine success for sure. I mean, this shows uh, that the state has its arms around this. We've immunized our highly vulnerable people and our, our mortality rates are way down from COVID. It's a success story for Connecticut. This is the, I, I just screenshot this from the DPH briefing a day or so ago. And this shows um, how we're covering by immunization and age in Connecticut. We're among the best in the United States. And you can see if you go to the bottom, um, 85 and above, about 70% are fully vaccinated. That is herd immunity. And in fact, it's 80% uh, in the 65 to 70 uh, to 85 range. So we have done remarkable work and pretty good in the 50s and up. Where we are struggling, if you take a look, um, 16 to 34 are uh, very under immunized. We're starting to inch up on the first dose getting to be around 50%, but uh, we are under immunizing the younger age group. And that's where the epidemic is in Connecticut right now. It's in that those age groups. We have to cross our fingers and hope that the complications and long haulers and all of that is a minority of those people because we have a lot of COVID in this age group. And it does worry me and it worries many of the infectious disease physicians about long-term outcomes from COVID infections. And I'm gonna show you some data about how even asymptomatic infection is not good for you. So Connecticut, great job immunizations, a challenge with our younger, fantastic uh, success in 50 and up, really remarkable, about the best in the country. The United States has, has administered about 250 million doses. I, I find this remarkable. I know there's a lot of angst in the media, but we have done a very good job with this. And we're not done yet, but we've done a very good job. And you can see we have over 100 million people fully vaccinated. About 150 million people have gotten at least one dose. Um, and if you go to the elderly, uh, 65 and above, we have reached herd immunity in that group. They're 70% fully vaccinated across the United States, a remarkable achievement. So some very good news, but we have hard work to do because now we're running into a group of people who don't really feel urgency to be immunized and we're not gonna get the pandemic under control unless we immunize a larger number of people. And you can see that our rate of immunization is falling off. Now we're still immunizing 2 million a day, which is terrific, but the, the uh, in, increase in immunization is falling off and you can see we're sort of bumping into that <clears throat> that uh, vaccine hesitancy group across the country. And uh, this will be a problem for us if we don't fix it. Now, again, I wanna show you some data with the elderly. Um, this shows you across the United States, a by age, how we've done with vaccinations. Elderly, a wild national, a worldwide success. I think it's probably among the best in the world. There are a few other countries, the UAE, Israel, a few others, but I think we're for the elderly and at risk, we've done a great job. But look what happens when you go to 30 and below. Uh, we're way below herd immunity and uh, this 40 below. This is where our challenge is. These are the age groups getting sick now, and this is the age group that needs to be immunized. Um, this is a graph showing total doses per 100,000 by state. So this is the other problem we have in the United States. We've done a great job when you look at the big picture, but we have pockets, particularly in the Southeast, that are strongly under immunized. 
uh, where they're very, really 20, 30% have gotten the first dose, <clears throat> that kind of thing, and including Puerto Rico. So we are gonna need to fix this. It can't be state by state because we'll have states with epidemics, people get in cars, and we'll continue to propagate this, this pandemic in the United States. So the states that are under immunized are gonna to have to be assisted to get that population immunized. You can see Southeast, Indiana, and, and a couple of far West states are, are struggling to immunize their populations. Take a look at South Dakota. I, I tip my hat to the governor there. They had a, a very bad outbreak. There was a lot of uh, anti-public health you know, angst and all, don't wear a mask and all this, but they went after immunizations big time and they're among the best states now. So uh, I, I think uh, we are seeing some good news across uh, some of the states. Unfortunately, the pandemic is raging on in parts of the rest of the world. Now we don't really know about Africa, but look at our neighbor, South America. I mean, Argentina has one of the worst outbreaks in the world right now. Brazil is, is uh, uh, struggling. Uh, Colombia, we don't really know what's going on in Venezuela. So a terrible problem in South America. Um, and then if you go to Asia, we've read about India and I talked about the uh, unbelievable outbreak in India right now, which is really a humanitarian emergency. And now Turkey uh, has a very, very um, huge uptick, um, struggling to maintain. So this pandemic is raging across the world and, and will not be fixed until we and other countries assist the entire world in the immunization campaigns. Now, good news on this, we're starting to inch our way forward to get the rest of the world immunized. Moderna, Gavi is a consortium uh, that gets vaccine out to developing countries. They've now committed to 500 million doses as soon as possible. And so I think we're starting to get pharma and the developed countries understanding that we're going to need to assist the entire world to get immunized to get this pandemic under control. Otherwise, we'll have new variants come back into the United States, the vaccine won't be good for. It's just, it's just sort of public health 101, we're gonna to have to do this. Now, um, moving on to some, the new data, things I've discovered over the last week that I think will be useful. People have been looking very, very hard about the J&J &J vaccine, are there more cases? And this is kind of where we are now. I, I think this is sort of the final data. There are 12 cases of this thrombosis syndrome out of 8 million doses given the United States. It's still, uh, you know, it's a little more than one in a million uh, likelihood. And remember, I showed you last week that if you actually get COVID, you have a 10 times higher rate of getting thrombosis than if you're immunized. So um, a relatively small number of people, but I think uh, everyone is working hard to unturn every stone about these vaccines and make sure we are very transparent and know what potential, what potential complications can occur. Now, uh, this is, uh, I think in the next 10 days, the, the Pfizer two-dose vaccine will be given EUA uh, authority to be given to children 12 and above. Um, I think we're pretty confident this is going to happen. Connecticut Children's is already organizing uh, how we will immunize our vulnerable patients. And I know the state is looking very carefully about how they could push this vaccine out into the primary care practices across the state. I don't know where DPH is with that, but I know they're working hard to find a way that that would be possible moving forward because that would be the best place to immunize uh, children will be the primary care practices that already care for them. 
Now let's talk about variants. So there's some really interesting data now about variants. If you'll notice the UK variant is that sort of tan yellow. There you go, that big, and that's basically taken over the whole United States. You can see on the far right, uh, B117, which is the originally is the UK strain, that's is more contagious, but probably not more virulent, uh, has, is dominating the United States now in variants. Now, unfortunately, there's a new variant that came out of New York. A lot of, a lot of things come out of New York, right? Many good things, some not so good things. And uh, this one you'll see is a purple bar down there. And you'll notice that that is growing very, very quickly. And uh, unfortunately, that's going to be a problem. Now, um, the SARS-CoV variants differ by geography. Again, TAN is the UK B117 mutant, which is all over the country now. But look in New York. That's the pink area. That is a new mutation. Uh, and I'm going to show you some data about this. Uh, this is spreading very quickly, and it is one that will be uh, a little more challenging than the UK variant because it looks like the vaccines are effective but not as good. So take a look at that, that pink area. You'll notice it's spreading through the Northeast first, but it will reach the rest of the country, no question. And this is the mutation. I'm sorry, it didn't come out quite as large as I would have liked, but you remember that e, E484K on the top there, that's the one in the South African mutation. That, that. So the New York mutation has the South African E484K mutation, but look at all the other red dots are other mutations present in the New York strain. So it has multiple mutations in the spike protein. Uh, this is data that's just coming out of Columbia University. Uh, there are a lot of labs looking at this variant very carefully because it is going to spread throughout the country. And um, luckily, uh, the variant appears to be neutralized by vaccine-elicited antibodies, although not as efficiently as this is from NYU. These data are not peer-reviewed, uh, I don't think yet. And if this study, they took um, antibodies from people who have been immunized and then looked at their effectiveness against this New York strain that has the multiple mutations, including the original South African mutation. And you'll see what happens is the, we still have neutralizing antibody, but it's about tenfold less than you have uh, from uh, other strains, the UK strain and the ones that are circulating wildly. So the vaccine is going to work, but there may be some breakthrough infections. It's possible that you'll see some mild breakthrough infections because there's a tenfold reduction in effectiveness. Now there's a lot of neutralizing antibody here still. See, that's way up there still, but it's a lot less that the antibodies are a lot less effective than they are against the UK and other strains. So we're gonna have to watch this closely. This is another reason as people don't fully understand, well, I don't need to get immunized. Um, unless we get our hands around this and can knock down the viral replication, we're going to have more and more variants get into the population and potentially reduce the effectiveness of vaccines. So that's uh, one of the arguments that I think is poorly understood in the media. Now, um, this is a very interesting study that's trying to figure out, okay, we, we know the vaccines work, but is there a number that we could pick? this amount of antibody is protective and we know it. And we have that for pneumococcus, for example, on H flu B, we know exactly how much antibody has to be in the blood to protect the child. We don't really know the immune correlates of um, protection 
uh, for SARS-CoV-2. And this study looked at immunization in primates. And it's, a, it's really interesting. What they did is they immunized primates and then they took only their antibodies and they were able to protect uh, other animals from infection with SARS-CoV-2. So antibody alone worked and they were actually able to sort of generate the amount of antibody that would actually prevent, they would take the antibodies, they'd give it to other animals passively and they could prevent infection. So, and it was IgG and it was neutralizing antibodies only. There are no T cells, there's no other help here. It was just, you know, IgG purified and then given to other animals to protect. So the antibodies alone work really well and they're getting close to figuring out exactly the amount of antibody that will protect. And I think that's gonna help us as we move to this post immunization world figuring out how long people could still be protected from vaccines. So tremendous progress being made, understanding better uh, what post-immunization immunity will be um, in terms of protectiveness. Now, this is a very interesting article. It came out last month. And in this article, they looked at surgery um, after so SARS-CoV-2 infection. It's a, a prospective multicenter cohort study that is all over the EU. It looked at mortality and elective and emergency surgery. And they just saw, did you have COVID or did you not? And what happened and when? So it's, it's a little scary actually. And what they found here is that whether you had asymptomatic or symptomatic COVID, if you had surgery in the first six weeks, you were at much higher risk of dying. And um, here you can see if you have asymptomatic COVID, this this black box is essentially normal. After seven weeks, you have no higher risk, one, no higher risk than anybody else. But here, you have a threefold higher risk of dying postoperatively in the first four weeks, six weeks after an asymptomatic COVID infection. That's mm -hmm. telling you that COVID is damaging organs or you're hyperthrombotic or there's something residual even after asymptomatic infection. Now, if you had symptomatic COVID, it's much worse. Uh, here, this, this black would be the normal, a uh, non-infected or, or after seven weeks after COVID. If you had symptoms and they resolved six-fold likelihood of dying, and if you still had a little bit of symptom, some symptoms and you had emergency surgery was required, you were at 14, 12 to 14 times likely dying. So uh, what this tells you is if we know you've had COVID, you should not have any surgeries for eight weeks, seven to eight weeks after that. And then your mortality rate after surgery will go down to normal. Uh, if there's emergency surgery and you've recently had COVID, there's a higher risk of mortality. It is what it is. So I, I think this will be very important information as we talk to people, particularly vaccine hesitant and tell, let them look at this kind of data showing that asymptomatic infections are not good for you. And if you have an asymptomatic infection, you happen to get in a car accident, you need surgery, your likelihood of dying is much, much higher than if you'd been immunized and not had COVID. So important data for us to use. Vaccine hesitancy. I wanna talk a little bit about this. Um, uh, and I, I did a lot of deep diving and other things. And, and so uh, apologies in advance if I step on anyone's toes as we work our way through this. Um, but we have a challenge. Um, we've got the people who want to get immunized are immunized. And now we're moving into those who are sort of at. Uh, and we're not going to get on top of this. Hopefully I've showed you the first 20 minutes. We are not going to get on top of this pandemic if we have continued viral replication all across the country. 
this is not a new problem. I showed this picture a year ago. This is a picture um, from the anti-vaccine group. You'll see it down here. It says the Society of Anti-Vaccination. Uh, I think they probably have a chapter today, right? And uh, this is after cowpox was found to prevent smallpox. So they were immunizing people with cowpox because milkmaids didn't get smallpox. There's that whole story. And this is a, a satirical cartoon showing people who are getting immunized turning into cows. They have cows coming out of their mouths and skin and they get boils that look like cows. And, and, and uh, it was an anti-vaccine uh, uh, from 1700s. So uh, the old style in the United States of uh, getting epidemics under control was mass vaccinations with key celebrities getting vaccinated. This is Elvis Presley getting the Salk polio vaccine on camera, you can see how eager he is to get it. And he actually, he actually was a, you know, apparently was pretty uh, forthright about helping out with these kind of things. And we had very successful soft vaccine. Polio put the fear of God into parents because you didn't want your kid paralyzed on an iron lung. But it wasn't just kids. You, you may remember or not remember that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had polio. He got it as a young adult in his 30s. So polio was a terrible disease and, and uh, people embraced the idea that mass vaccination could eradicate polio. Unfortunately, we seem to be in a different place culturally than we were when Elvis was still popular. Celebrities are still getting vaccinated. This is the COVID-19 vaccine. This is uh, Alex and this is Hugh Jackman. This would be Wolverine getting immunized on television, on camera trying to push the fact that celebrities get it, even young, healthy celebrities get it, that we need to get vaccinated with COVID-19 vaccine. The challenge we have today is there's a separate media and this media is exploiting uh, anti-vaccine rhetoric to drive ratings. We just have to be honest about it. I don't think uh, you know anybody would lie about that. We're exploiting anti-public health and anti-vaccine rhetoric to drive ratings, to make money. I think this is a, a very destructive uh, tendency, and um, uh, uh, Mr. Carlson is one of the premier uh, advocates of preventing vaccination against COVID-19 right now. And I think, uh, unfortunately, this is uh, there are millions and billions of people who watch this and sows doubt in their minds. Now, what I would like, if he happens to be listening to this talk, I would say, you know, I respect the idea that you feel it's an individual choice to be immunized, but I would also like you to look at all the data I've presented, knowing that young, healthy adults should be immunized to get this pandemic under control across the world. And I'd love for you to get on television, say, you know, I believe in free choice, but I also believe that my job is to get immunized, to get this pandemic under control, and here's my shot. Mr. Carlson, I lay that to you as a challenge. I think I can't tell you how valuable that would be for leadership in this country right now. Unfortunately, um, we are used to our old style of reasoning with vaccine hesitancy. This is from Johns Hopkins website. This is sort of the thing I do this, you know, it's gonna protect you from getting sick. People of color, especially vulnerable, get vaccinated, helps others in your community. You know, you go through the list of things. Uh, diversity, the COVID-19 was tested in very diverse people. Uh, pregnancy, here's what we know, let me talk to you about it. This is sort of the old style and, and it works for some people. It, it does work for some people. Now, Atlantic Magazine recently interviewed a variety of anti-vaccine members of the public. It's fascinating reading and I think it shows us that times have changed. 
And in addition to the media spouting anti-public health and anti-vaccination uh, rhetoric to drive ratings that people believe, unfortunately, we have a very different attitude. And, and part of the problem, I think, is that COVID-19 uh, is, is was felt originally as it only it's only going to hurt and kill the old people. And I think that's kind of where a lot of people sit still. And whether for good or bad, they don't feel it's urgent for them. I want to read some of these to you. These are direct interviews of people. Many people said they'd read up on the risk of COVID-19 to people under 50 and felt the pandemic did not pose a grave threat. The chances of me dying from a car accident are higher than dying from COVID, said Michael Searle, 36-year-old from Austin, Texas but it's not like I don't get in my car. Um, the coronavirus is wildly overrated threat. Yeah, it's appropriate and good to protect old vulnerable people, but I'm not old or vulnerable. If I get it, I'll be fine. In fact, I may have already gotten it and I am fine. I don't know why I should consider this disease more dangerous than driving a car. A risky thing I do every day without a moment's worries. Liberals, Democrats, and public health elites have been wrong so often, we'd be better off doing the opposite of everything they say. Now. I think this is a fast, very important um, to hear this because I'm a public health, I don't consider myself elite, I'm a doctor, and I'm frankly not that liberal, but they're putting this in a bucket to demonize people who are telling scientific truths as some sort of uh, you know, political agitator. It's, it's very dangerous and something unfortunately has been exploited. I, I mentioned I might step on some toes today, but. To me, this kind of thinking is extremely dangerous. And because the fact of the matter is that public health and science are not political. They're not Republican or Democratic. They're scientific fact driving behavior to prevent death. That's just truth. This is, this is very dangerous, but a lot of people believe this and it's a problem. Let me read some more to you. It's gonna show you our current strategies aren't gonna work. There's suspicion of public health officials, media and science, and it's sort of mixed with this aggressive individualism. I don't need some novel pharmaceutical product to give me permission to do the things I already am doing. This even isn't even FDA approved vaccine. It's authorized for an emergency. Well, I don't consider COVID-19 a personal emergency. So why would I sign up to be an early guinea pig for a therapy I don't need, whose long-term effects I don't understand? I'd rather bet on my immune system than big pharma. There's a lot in there, um, a lot of anger, a, a, a lot of, um, selfishness, quite frankly, and, and lack of understanding that normalcy cannot be achieved unless you consider it not just your personal emergency, but emergency for others. And that's where there's a missing link in that person. I've lost faith in the media and public health officials, said Miles Pendis, a 20-year-old in Brooklyn, New York, who told me he's skeptical of the mRNA vaccines, may be interested in the J&J shot. It might sound crazy, but I'd rather go to Twitter and check out a few people I trust that take guidance from the CDC, WHO, or Fauci, said a truck driver from Colorado. Other no-vaxxers offered similar appraisals of Democrats, liberals, but they were typically not printable. And finally, there's a suspicion based on past history of racism and discrimination. It is very much out there and we have not addressed it as effectively as we could. This individual is a great interview to hear what she said. Others were worried that vaccines might have long-term side effects. As a black American descendant of slaves, I am bottom cast in terms of finances, Georgette Russell, a 40-year-old from New Jersey said. The fact that there is no way to sue the government or the pharmaceutical company if I have any adverse reactions is problematic to me. So bottom of the economic ladder, fear 
that if anything happens to me from this epidemic or the vaccine, I will not have the ability to fix it. Very important, a very important comment for us to understand. So what are our strategies going to be to enhance immunization as we try to defeat this pandemic? And I, I came up with some ideas. First off, there are many people who are listening to science, facts, reasoning. Our job is to present this with compassion, non-judgment, and work, it will work with them. Many, many, I've talked to many people who have decided to get immunized. Um, I was in my dentist's office and the hygienist said, oh, I'm not getting immunized, the whole nine yards. I said, well, you know, I'm kind of sitting here. And I went through my whole thing and uh, she got immunized and the dentist called me, they were very excited. She was the last one. So we can make an impact. But um, science, facts, reasoning, listening, compassion may not work for everyone. Some perceive that the pandemic and immunization efforts are an effort to stifle individual rights driven by left-wing politics. It is, that is nurtured, as you saw from the media, uh, certain parts of the media, it is being nurtured. It is, in my view, public health and scientific fact are not political, are not part of left-wing politics. Anytime there's a public health crisis, individual rights are always, it's always a balancing act. An example would be there was an individual with multi-resistant tuberculosis who got on an airplane. That individual was arrested and taken out and so he could go into isolation so the whole plane wouldn't be infected with multi-resistant tuberculosis. Those kinds of interference with individual rights are common when there are public health emergencies historically in the United States. And I think, again, this is not left-wing politics. This is protecting our population from disease and death. So, but that's out there and we have to deal with it. I think it will be critical to find important individuals from these constituents to get vaccinated on television, just the way Hugh Jackman did. We're gonna need some people who, who are perceived as part of the constituent who believes the left-wing politics are driving this to get immunized. Tucker, I throw that challenge out to you. Some remain resistant to immunization based on historical discrimination and economic disadvantage. We're gonna to have to redouble our efforts with their trusted community leaders and make immunization really easy to get and, and, and make sure that we can be out in these communities to build the trust necessary to get more, more individuals immunized. Some of our media and politicians continue to exploit the pandemic and nurture anti-public health behavior. A lot of this is on social media, we got to get smart. We need to be on social media and countering this uh, on plat social media platforms. And I will say there was a recent study that showed 12 individuals generated 90% of the anti-vaccine social media flurry. 12 individuals started that. We're going to need to get smart on those who believe in public health and science and getting on social media to counter this sort of behavior. And finally, it may come that making immunization required for a variety of important activities, such as international travel, cruise ships, healthcare jobs, and other key employment, maybe sports events, that may drive immunization as people realize it's inconvenient not to be immunized. I'll go get the shot because I want to go on a cruise. That may happen, and maybe that also will be another one of our strategies to, to get more people immunized. The good, the bad, the ugly, pandemic year two, and then we have lots of time for questions. The vaccinations in the United States are still giving more than 2 million a day. Um, it is a wild success story, but we are running into some headwinds. It's, we're gonna have to deal with it. Connecticut has outstanding immunization levels. We still have community spread in a lot of towns. Be vigilant. 
when they're all gray and they don't have spread, then we'll be okay. But we have a lot of red towns still. And the United States fourth resurgence has leveled off and, and may be ending for now, let's hope. But we have more variants that are prevalent and they may cause breakthrough infections. Large sections of the United States remain under immunized. The worldwide pandemic is roaring ahead, especially in India, Turkey, and South America. The U.S. is going to need to help immunize these countries or we risk reintroduction of more virulent, more virulent variants. There are now surplus immunizations in the U.S. Vaccine hesitancy is impeding herd immunity, which may not be attainable across the country if we don't fix that problem. So I, that's all I needed to say this week. It was a lot, but we have plenty of time for questions. Thank you, uh, John. Uh, that, that, was, that was great. I really appreciate that. We have uh, 240 individuals logged into today's meeting. So obviously it's a reason to, for its success and uh, this continues to be very popular. We'll, we'll continue to do it. We have a lot of questions and comments, uh, and these are very good questions, so I appreciate it. I'll begin with uh, a question. What will happen when the, we get the majority of Connecticut residents vaccinated, but those of us who are vaccinated during the first months of the year begin to lose or potentially lose our immunity? Are there plans to booster shots, and how will this affect transmission? It's a great question. Um, I think we are going to be getting booster shots. I think this is going to smolder along much like influenza. And my bet would be we're going to have annual boosters for SARS-CoV-2. I can't tell you when that's going to happen this year or next year, but I would anticipate at the end of the year, January, that there'll be a booster. Now, um, there's active work incorporating many of the variants, both Moderna and Pfizer have boosters that include the spike protein that we already are dealing with and mutant spike protein combined in a vaccine so that you would boost both of the common ones we have now and some of the variants. So I anticipate there'll be a booster that will also pull in some of the more common circulating variants at the end of the year. But again, I, I, I'm going out on a limb telling you the date on that. But yes, I do think we're gonna have boosters. I think they're gonna be very effective. Look at the efficacy of this vaccine, 90% plus for the RNA vaccines. When have we ever seen a respiratory vaccine that good? Look at flu, it's not nearly that good. So we're very, we're, we're, we're gifted that we have a, a fantastic vaccine platform. Yes, booster, probably by the end of the year. Uh, and I think it's gonna include variants. I, I agree with you, John. And um, the, the question about long haul syndrome, when an individual is still suffering from long haul syndrome or for, from COVID infection with respiratory symptoms, should they still get the vaccine? Great question, and I would argue yes, because two reasons. One is there are actually anecdotal reports now of long haulers who are, were immunized and actually felt better and got better. That's not prospective randomized data yet, but there's some letters to the editor, that kind of thing. Maybe that's gonna be true, I don't know. Also, I, I think um, you can get it again. And, um, if anything, we've seen how damaging this virus can be as it hits your uh, receptors, the ACE2 receptor and your blood vessels and kidneys and everywhere else. So I would argue that you should be immunized again. It may actually have benefit, but will also prevent you from getting it again, which could make the individual seriously ill. I, we don't know what's gonna happen to long haulers if they get it again. I, I don't think I'd wanna risk that personally. So um, that's my answer to that question. Another question, very interesting. There's a lot of uh, noise in the, in, the, in the media on this. Uh, I've heard from a few young female adults concerns with getting the COVID vaccine 
as it may potentially affect their fertility and may also affect their periods. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there are no data whatsoever that these vaccines affect fertility. And in fact, it's been given to millions and millions of individuals and many have gotten pregnant and had families after immunization. And so there are no data showing that these vaccines affect fertility. Now it is on young person's social media. It's like a virus that's spread um, and it is out there. Uh, almost every young person I've talked to asked me about it and it's not factually correct. So that's all you can do. That's why I made the comment, we need to be out on social media pushing facts because there are small numbers of people pushing misinformation and disinformation across social media platforms. Uh, next question, a comment from uh, from David Kroll. Um, I wonder if the poor numbers in older adolescents might be due to a limited number of pediatric practices providing vaccinations due to barriers like refrigeration, et cetera. Any data to support that theory? And any thoughts on how we can help our primary care pediatricians deliver these vaccines for 12 to 15? I think the most effective place to get kids immunized is going to be the practices they're already parents and they're already familiar with. Completely agree. DPH in Connecticut's working on it. I, I know they're cr trying to create a plan of is centralized storage. Are they going to push fridges out to the practices? I don't know where DPH and how they're going to land on that, but I completely agree. I have not seen data showing that the slow uptake in that age group is because it's not in the practices, but you know, the easier you make it to get the vaccine and, and the, the easier the parents and more comfortable they feel, the more people are going to get immunized. So it would make sense, uh, certainly. So I think it, it should be the national model moving forward, uh, but there will be some challenges in storage. I don't think they're that big a challenge. I think they're fixable. So stay tuned, David. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in Connecticut, but I know it's actively being talked about in DPH of how to fix that problem. I think the other uh, important piece of information is that Pfizer now has some, you know, some good solid data that uh, the vaccine can be kept at uh, normal refrigeration for up to four weeks. And so once that happens and the FDA approves it that way, then it's going to make it a lot easier for everyone. You could, you could almost think of a central freezer where they could push the vaccine out to and you get monthly amounts that you could give to lots and lots of kids. So I'm optimistic that these vaccines are going to land in primary care offices where they should. And I do think it's going to help, but it's still, you're still going to bump into the same hesitancy issues I talked about though. John, the, uh, the Indian variant, which is called B1617, that in fact, you know, it's called a double mutant, although it has 13 mutations um, based on, on what I've read. Uh, but what about the double mutant? Are, is, is, the, is the vaccine, is, are the mRNA vaccines effective? One of our uh, individuals that are, that are one, of, one of our pediatricians is asking, because personally that, you know, they know people in India that were fully vaccinated using the vaccines that are used in India who died of the infection? I, you know, I, I've not, I showed you the data on the New York strain where there's, it's tenfold less, but a lot of neutralization still. I have not seen those data for the Indian multiple mutant strain. Now I would make the comment that the vaccine as I'm aware used in India have been the Chinese and the Sputnik whose efficacy is less than the mRNA vaccines that we use. So I, I can't, in, interpret that unless I know that um, the individuals in India got the Pfizer mRNA or the Moderna mRNA vaccines, which I don't think they did. We still see breakthrough infections in the United States. There are a small number of breakthroughs. And so we're trying to sort out, is that due to variants or just waning immunity in some people? We don't know. A lot of unknowns. 
I have not seen specific data on the Indian variant. Now, I would make the comment the best way for us to kind of not have to worry about this would be to push out efficacious vaccines as fast as we can into India and get those people immunized. Used in India is uh, the AstraZeneca product and Covaxin is the other one that's been used there, but um, which is the, but none of them are mRNA vaccines. None of them have the efficacy 90% plus that the Moderna and Pfizer do. Um, from Dr. Scherzer, once the vaccine has FDA authorization, will it be mandatory at Connecticut Children's as influenza? The wonderful privilege of sort of retiring from making management decisions, and so I can't tell you what those decisions would be. In my opinion, you heard the word opinion, um, I think this is no different than making sure you're immune against chickenpox or hepatitis B. We have an obligation as healthcare providers to make sure we're immune to diseases that we can transmit to our patients or hurt us. So in my opinion, it would make sense uh, to make it as part of our employment package. We get immunized for a variety of things, and this would be one of them uh, after the EUA is made into just a license by the FDA. I can tell you what CCMC management will do. Um, uh, that would not be my role. Uh, there are discussions with the, with the Connecticut Hospital Association. You've been part of some of those meetings where um, I think there's a strong push that once the it's fully licensed, uh, you know, these mRNA vaccines, and they will be very shortly, that it will become a mandatory vaccine for healthcare providers. That's just a thought from this Connecticut Hospital Association. I would agree. I sat through that meeting, and it was unanimous uh, that every hospital representative felt that it needed to be required for a lot of reasons. One, it would make other employees more comfortable. It allows you to eat. It just fixes a lot of problems when we have, when we're mixing vulnerable, unimmunized with a lot of immunized people. So uh, I would agree, but I, again, I can't tell you what management of CCMC is going to do. With new variants, uh, are, is, is our testing still good, our PCR testing? All right, yes, I think it is good. I, I have no doubt that we'll, and by the way, there are some of the rapid tests that miss some of the variants. One of the reasons we do stay with lab-based PCR or LIAT-based PCR. So the answer is yes, but that's something we have to be vigilant about. It is possible at some point that that might not be true, but so far it's okay. Um, does the surgery risk associated with COVID also hold for C-section? I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know whether C-sections were included in that big portfolio, that multi-center cohort. I don't know the answer. Um, it's a good question. Uh, I'll, I'll look into it. Uh, I don't know. Very good question. It's, it's a good argument for getting pregnant women vaccinated. It's a great argument. It's one of the additional arguments uh, about getting um, pregnant women vaccinated because it is an immunocompromised state. So they, people are getting sicker with COVID. In fact, we, we have somebody ill, very ill right now. So I would agree one. Any, any change in surgical time after vaccination? Surgical time. Rare and timing of elective surgery. So if you get vaccinated, there shouldn't be any problem getting elective surgery. Vaccinated, there shouldn't be any problem uh, unless you've had COVID and it needs to be eight weeks past COVID. The problem is, you know, a lot of people have asymptomatic. We're not going to know. It's a reason to keep testing and get everyone immunized. So if you've had the vaccine, I don't think there'd be any delay indicated. Uh, regarding that increased risk of death from surgery, are these numbers age, strat age stratified? Uh, are these only adults? Any word on risk for surgery in peace? I, I think it was mostly adults. Uh, again, it's a, it was a multi-center, international, EU-based trial. So I, I don't think there were a lot of children in there. 
question for both of us from uh, Dr. Moles. Would we, if if we had if we had uh, healthy young teens, well, we have older healthy people, kids, but if we had healthy young teens, would we immunize once approved? And I mean, my answer would be absolutely. Absolutely, um, and I can tell you the reasons why. The virus, um, as you saw from the surgical data, even asymptomatic infections are damaging something. Otherwise, you wouldn't have fivefold, threefold death rate higher. So uh, this is not good for you. We have no idea the long-term consequences of this virus infection to a child. We also see individuals coming in with MISI, and we've had some very sick ICU-based children who just get sick. We don't understand why. And finally, we're not going to defeat the pandemic across the world, the country, unless we immunize children as well. So those are all the reasons to immunize your child. And in addition, the safety profile from the mRNA vaccines is terrific. Two questions regarding the southern border and migration from Latin America. These keep coming up. So um, any concerns about variants coming in through either illegal immigration, southern border, et cetera? You know, I have to say, I'm more concerned about an airplane, honestly, than the southern border. We have a lot of problems with the southern border. I don't want to get into, um, frankly, I don't want to get into that. But I, I do think um, any traveler coming from an endemic area where there are variants is a challenge. That's why uh, planes from India have now been, are now being blocked, because uh, we don't want potential variants coming in. Um, I would think, you know, if you look at Argentina, they have a much more severe outbreak than Mexico right now. So I, I think in general, international travel is challenging right now with variants everywhere. And, and so I, you know, I, the southern border is an issue, airplanes coming into New York or California, I mean, anywhere people coming in from. So I, I don't think the pandemic matters where. Um, and, you know, uh, Turkey now has a really bad outbreak and there'll be variants in Turkey. There'll be a Turkish variant soon that we don't know about. So I think this is everywhere and, and I would focus on any international travel coming in and out. Uh, for the individuals who had a reaction to their, their either first or second vaccine, do you think the booster will be worse? I have no idea, but it's a great question. Um, I think the stakes are gonna be higher, uh, you know, now that we learn more and more about this virus. so. I think most people will probably get sick for a day, the same you got sick from the second dose. It's going to be you know months later, so but I can't predict. But I, you know I think this vaccine has shown you that the immune response is very robust, and if you boost, probably you'll have a similar response that you had after the second dose, in my opinion. But I, I can't predict that. I don't know. As a school nurse, I have had multiple reports of young girls having disruption of their menses cycles after Pfizer vaccines. It's an interesting uh, observation. Um, I've not seen any prospective data. Now, I will make the comment that after the second dose, you're very sick for a day. And certainly that could disrupt menses, but it's a great question, one in which I will start data mining and see if there is any sort of prospective analysis looking at um, uh, adolescent or young women who are getting this vaccine and menstrual periods. I, I think it's a very interesting anecdotal observation, but there are a lot of things that can disrupt menses and, and certainly being sick for a day, the 101 fever and not feeling well. So uh, um, hard to know vaccine, is it the immune response to the vaccine or is it something really happening? So, so a great comment, something I'm gonna data mine over the next week, try to figure out. All right, P political comment, which is just a comment. I'm going to read it because we, you know, we want to be uh, transparent and have everyone's view. 
from Jane Brotonek, as I think that's her pronounce her last name. Why are we not talking about the southern border issues at all? If indeed we're having an honest and science-based conversation, why is there not discussion of the lack of transparency and accountability regarding the southern border crisis? Perhaps if this was addressed head-on, more vaccine-hesitant people would be less resistant. They often feel liberals are ignoring them and being dishonest. Just, I'm just reading so as a comment. I, I, what I would say as a public health person, I would want to make sure everyone coming to the country was screened for COVID, and if they are, isolated. I, I don't know what's happening on the southern border. That would be my public health advice uh, that people call anybody. Airplane, uh, coming from wherever, that people should be COVID negative coming into the country. That would be my preference, and I think almost every infectious disease doctor would agree with that. Thank you, Jane, for your commentary. We will always address questions here and we'll be completely transparent. Everybody coming in, we should make sure that they're COVID negative. If not COVID negative, they should be isolated so they can't spread COVID like any other person. So I appreciate the comment. Uh, and I, I say, I have to admit to you, I'm a little more worried about airplanes coming in from, from uh, some of the countries where they have multiple mutations right now. So, but they're all legitimate comments. I appreciate it. Uh, from Shannon Hogan is, is uh, more of a comment. Uh, I had a nine-year-old patient yesterday who has a birthday in September who said getting the COVID vaccine will be the best birthday present ever. Cool. Uh, well, you know, maybe we can put that on television too. So that would, that's great. Thank you. Um, as of now, I think surgery is only recommended two to four weeks after immunization. Uh, it is not the same for COVID vaccines. I think it has something to do, some, something to do with anesthesia from uh, Dr. Sashi. So just a comment. Um, what is the U.S. incident of Missy? Any any Missy I incidents? I don't know the incidence of it. I, I know that um, uh, there's a steady trickle of Missy patients. Anytime that there's, there's an outbreak that the children are more involved in, I don't know, Juan. I know when the outbreak swept across the West, there were, the hospitals had a lot of Missy cases, certainly in Connecticut, at our very big peak. We were admitting a lot of kids with Missy. That's trickled down now. So... I don't know the national incidents. I don't know if we know the national incidents. Juan, do you have any information on that? No, but we've we've had a lot of kids with Missy in, in the past uh, four to six weeks here in Connecticut, and uh, uh, so you know it's still a rare event. Uh, but but I would say is in the in the thousands probably throughout throughout the U.S. Remember the prime target right now of where this epidemic's propagating are younger people. So we're going to see more Missy until we immunize that age group. Okay, so uh, from Ken Spiegelman, dear, dear uh, uh, Dr. Walensky reiterated that the CDC recommendations this week that children in camps continue to wear masks outside. There was significant pushback by some well-respected physicians in the field. Please comment also on inside-outside mask wearing. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, there's public health measures, and you also have to be realistic. Indoors. I think you need to wear masks until we have a more immunized population. It makes sense. We don't know the ventilation. There are all the things we've talked about over the months. So in my opinion, indoors, we absolutely should be wearing masks still. I think outdoors becomes a little more problematic. Um, I think if you're separated out and you're outdoors and on a hike, you know, it's difficult to enforce um, people wearing masks. So I think it's a balancing act to be realistic and also prevention. Indoors, we know we can spread COVID around. We know ventilation's an issue. We know talking and, and singing and all of that. So indoors to me is a hard stop, get your mask on. Outdoors, I tend to be a little more flexible because I'm realistic. Uh, I know that my son who's in his 30s still plays soccer in, in Washington and there's just no way you can wear a mask as midfield. It's just not possible. 
it falls off or gets wet or by the time, you know, it's just not going to be possible. So I think we have to be, um, uh, you know, firm about what we know is going to really make an impact and probably give a little bit in areas where we know common sense and it's just not realistic. That's just my opinion. I always do what the CDC suggests, and that's what I would suggest to people, but I'm a little more realistic about outdoor activities, in my opinion. Uh, this is a great question. Good morning, and thank you for the informative session. This is from David White. Uh, my, my question is, in knowing that respiratory droplets are a main vector of transmission, are there any studies documenting importance of IgA-mediated responses, or are the vaccines capable of producing such a response? Yeah, great question, and I want to back up and say it's a great question for a lot of reasons, because IgA is important coastal barrier against pathogens. And if you may remember back in the day when the H flu vaccine first came out, it's an injectable. All of a sudden we found that H flu carriage in the nasopharynx of children went away. Now we didn't understand that. It turns out that the injected vaccine actually produced a lot of IgA and wiped out nasopharyngeal carriage. It was a bonus for the H flu vaccine. We didn't understand why that happens, but it was terrific. I've not seen the data for the COVID vaccines. It may be out there. I just haven't seen it yet. Uh, I think it's a very important question. Uh, will the injectable vaccines get some IgA produced? And does that have a role in the immune process against SARS-CoV-2? I don't know the answer. I've not seen the data yet. I I'm sure someone's working on it, though. Great question. Uh, there are uh, way too many questions. It's, uh, this was great, John. I think we, we've, you know, th this is the most questions I've seen. And... Um, by the way, we're not trying to censor anyone, uh, just to, for, for clarity. No, I, I, I appreciate all questions. I, I think one of the things, and I appreciate the question about, you know, if you're going to claim science, then look at all the things, even if it's uncomfortable. I appreciate that. And I, I made the comment, look, in terms of immigration and plane flights and all this, in my opinion, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. Let's make sure people coming in aren't infected. And if they are infected, let's isolate them. I think that should be just common policy across the country. I, I don't care what border it is. And frankly, Canada has a lot of COVID right now. We're talking about reopening the border with Canada this week. I, I was on the news today. So I think uh, we're going to have that problem in the northern border as well, trying to understand how we're going to manage that and, and make sure. So I, I appreciate that, the, the questions. On that. The last one is, uh, this is a great question, asking for a friend who's a singing teacher. Is it safe to have in-person individual voice lessons if both parties are vaccinating, indoors, air filter in place, etc.? You know, it's a great question. Uh, if everyone's vaccinated, um, I suppose the risk is low, uh, but not zero because someone, you know, again, there's some breakthrough infections and that. So I think if you had a vaccinated cohort in a well-ventilated room and there was a singing, um, I think it'd be better if you could do it outside. So again, we had, this is the most, I mean, almost 50 questions. We could only answer 24. So we have 23 left um, and we did uh, the ones that were, it didn't matter what, you know, liberal or conservative will answer those questions. John, thank you very much. And remember, public health is not liberal or conservative. It's scientific-based. I appreciate all of the questions, even if they promote discomfort. Thank you. And by the way, thank you all of you for what you do every day. Um, this has certainly been my most, one of my most rewarding experiences in my career of working with everyone in the Connecticut community through this pandemic. Thank you and have a good week. Take care, everyone. We'll see you on Tuesday. Bye-bye.